This morning's scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, church. Um, imagine with me for a, for a minute that um, you came across an envelope that contained a lengthy letter, and you being uh, the very good citizen that you are, you're determined to deliver this uh, anonymous kind of envelope to its rightful destination. Um, but more than likely, you'll, your first step would be to to look and see who the letter is written to. So you look on the front and see if there's a name uh, that it's addressed to. Uh, but to your dismay, there's no name. Um, to make matters worse, not only is there no name, there's no address either. There's no city. There's no postcode. Um, with no clue who the recipient of this letter might be. Um, so your next step, you'd probably look for like a return address, um, but there's not one. Um, we know, have no idea who wrote or, or mailed this letter. Um, there's no sender's name, no sender's address. Uh, so not only do we not know where and, and to whom the letter is written, but we don't know where or uh, by whom the letter uh, is from. Uh, maybe there's postage or a date. Um, to at least tell us when the letter was written, but no joy. Really, your only option uh, then is to open up the envelope, uh, to, to read the letter, and, and the hope is that it begins with that greeting, Dear Anne, um, or Dear Beloved Members of Village Church, but again, there's nothing. So you go to the end of the letter expecting at least there will be a, a concluding salutation. Um, sincerely, Jason, uh, but nothing. Uh, so without any clue concerning by whom or to whom or when or from where uh, or whatever reason this letter was written, um, our only option left is to read the letter, um, to uh, read its contents, just praying that the substance of the letter will provide us with some answers, uh, some indication of what it's all about. Welcome to the letter to the Hebrews. Um, this incredibly important uh, letter that's in our Bibles. Uh, we're not sure who wrote it. Uh, we're not sure who exactly they were writing to uh, or when it was composed. Um, lots of questions. So really the question that might be in your head is, well, then why are we going to launch into months-long uh, study of this, of this letter? Um, Sam Storms, uh, he, he said, just like Romans or Isaiah or Philippians, this letter was breathed out by God. That is to say, it is inspired, inerrant, and was therefore designed by God to exert its authority and influence over what we think and feel and believe and behave. And we don't have time to, to really get into the canonicity of this letter. Um, feel free to do that. But I, I'm confident that as we slowly make our way through this, uh, this letter, uh, God's going to make it clear that this is actually a letter from him to us. 
He has a lot to say to us. Um, look into those, those questions if, if you want. I'm not saying they're not important. We shouldn't try to answer those questions. Uh, scholars for centuries have, have looked into these details, and uh, there's really uh, two main ways to, to come up with answers uh, for these questions. Firstly, by reading the letter, pouring over the contents of it. Um, secondly, by observing what others who lived somewhat close to the time of the letter uh, have said about it. Um, an example is the, the, even the title uh, in, your, in your Bible, the letter to the Hebrews or the epistle to the, to the Hebrews. That's not the original uh, title given by the author. That was a title given by the early church uh, after they had poured over the contents and, and decided this is the best title to this letter. Um, I think it's a good title. It's held up for a couple thousand years. Um, but we look at the, the writing style, the vocabulary, the subject matter uh, to help us to understand more. We, we compare it to the rest of Scripture to see how it holds up, how it fulfills uh, the rest of Scripture, how, whether it contradicts uh, parts of it. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on answering these questions or trying to, uh, but, but I think it's important to, we're going to be in this for months, so let's have a kind of firm grasp of what this letter is. Uh, firstly, who wrote the letter? Um, a lot of uh, uh, people have been suggested to be the author. Um, names putting, uh, put forth as possibilities include uh, Barnabas, as Paul's missionary companion. Uh, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Apollos. Um, some interesting uh, ones. Uh, Priscilla, or even Priscilla and Aquila as a team. Um, the Apostle Paul has been put forth. Um, the bottom line is we simply don't know. Um, most scholars agree uh, with Origen, who declared, but who wrote the epistle? In truth, God knows. And, and I want you to know that that's okay. Um, uh, knowing the author could be helpful, but it's not a deal breaker. Um, there, there's quite a few anonymous letters or, or books in, in the Bible. It's a common thing in the Old Testament, uh, particularly. Um, when was it written? Uh, most scholars agree probably sometime in the early 60s of the first century. Um, so the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was in 70 AD. Um, the author in this letter uh, speaks of the ritual sacrifices of the temple still occurring, so it was probably before that. It was probably before 64 AD, so that's when Nero started his murderous campaign of persecution of the Christians. Um, the author talks about these believers having kind of hardship and persecution, but not facing death yet, so it's probably before that. Uh, early 60s. Uh, who was it written to? Uh, we're pretty certain it was written to urban Christians. Um, they're, they're in a city. They're in a pluralistic society, society where really their commitment to Jesus and the way of Jesus and the, the church brings hostility uh, to them. So even though they're not being killed for their faith, it's hard to be a follower of Christ here. It's a, a theme that we can maybe start to uh, understand ourselves. Most people agree it was the church in Rome. Uh, the author appears to have an intimate relationship with the audience. He knows them. Uh, um, you see that he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament. Um, they, they understand the history of Israel, the, the, uh, the, the Old Covenant, the Jewish system with priests and sacrifices. And uh, that's the reason why it's given the title to the Hebrews. Um, but lastly, and most, uh, certainly most importantly, what's the purpose of the letter? This is where we can be on solid ground because we can read and, and, uh, uh, the contents of the letter. Most people believe it's written to Jewish believers, uh, men and women in the church, probably in Rome, who have professed faith in Christ. So they, they're, they're brought up as Jews, but they profess their faith 
in Jesus as the Messiah. And because of that profession of faith and their identification with the church, um, they're experiencing persecution. They're experiencing hardship. Um, and because Judaism at the time was protected under Roman law, they're, they're tempted to fall back to that, to, to fall back on their old ways, to, to the old covenant uh, under Moses. They're under pressure, um, especially from their Jewish community. Why are you following Jesus? You, you've already been taught how to gain access to God. It's, it's through the covenant God made with us through Moses. It's through the Levitical system of priests and, and sacrifices. That's where the hope uh, for the people of God is found, not in Jesus. And, and here's where the main purpose of the letter, the main theme of the letter that Nick already introduced is that Jesus is better than, than those things. Storm says, Hebrews was designed to establish the finality and the superiority of Jesus Christ to everything that came before him. And by doing so, to call men and women to press forward in their relationship with Jesus and not fall back or revolt, uh, re- revert to, their, to the ways of the old covenant. Jesus is better. Um, that's the message that we're going to unpack for, for months, really. That Jesus is better. Hebrews specifically talks about him being better than any angel, any priest, any old covenant institution. And then the readers, therefore, are, are encouraged not to leave such a great salvation. and To, to hold on by faith to, to the true rest that's found only in Jesus. And to encourage others in the church to persevere. And that word, that Greek word that's translated better or more excellent... It's used in every chapter. It's the theme um, that we're going to kind of unpack. Jesus is better than what came before, but he's also the fulfillment of what came before. Um, so it's important to note that in saying, hey, Jesus is better than anything and everyone that came before him in the old covenant, it's not saying that those things were bad. They, they, were, they were actually good. They were for uh, Israel's good, these systems and people. Um, but we're shown that these systems and sacrifices and rituals and the promises were, were um, incomplete. They're preparatory in a way. They're, they're only foreshadows. They're, they're pointing towards something better or, or someone better. They were good, but Jesus is better. Um, a common illustration to kind of uh, understand that is like when an architect is made, uh, is, uh, they're tasked to build a, uh, like a shopping center. Um, what they'll do is they'll make up plans, they'll draw up designs, and they'll build a miniature model of the shopping center that they want to build. Um, but as soon as the, 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 the actual building is complete and it's built, well, then the model is, is put aside because it, it only pointed to something better. It, that to which it pointed has arrived. So we, we don't need the model anymore. And that's the, the, the author's argument in this letter, that Jesus... And the new covenant is the fulfillment of all that that came before in the old covenant. All this that only represented, that only pointed forward to what was to come. The question then is, well, what does this have to do with us? What, what is this, this ancient letter written to, to Jewish believers in the ancient city of Rome have to do with, with us? What does it have to say to me? And I'd suggest that it's... Of infinite importance to us. Uh, because the, the question that, that these believers were, were asking themselves was, why is life so hard? I, I've put my faith in Jesus. Now, 
life is, is more difficult in a way. Should I continue, should I carry on in the faith? And, and that's a question that every single person in this room will have to ask themselves and, and come up with an answer for. Because life is difficult. There is hardship and suffering ahead of every single person in this room. And the, the, we've always kind of said that one of the privileges of being a pastor is you kind of get a little front row seat into what's happening in people's lives that most people don't get to see. And, and I know a lot of you experience hardship and suffering. I also know that a lot of you haven't yet, there's, there's that, but that's to come. Just the other night, I uh, was meeting with a couple who said, uh, up until a few months ago, everything was pretty good in their lives. They hadn't experienced any grievances. Uh, there's no real, they had good jobs. They had a uh, good upbringing, good relationship. But within like three months, they were just hammered with loss after loss after loss. The writer of Hebrews is saying, life is a difficult journey. And the only way to get through it the only way to navigate it is by fixing your eyes on Jesus. Storm says there, there's only one way that will sustain you in suffering and empower you to face temptation and to fill you with the sort of joy and peace that will satisfy your soul. There's only one thing that will equip you to make the hard choices and will captivate and fascinate your mind and supply you with a never-ending abundance of resources to meet your every need. And that one thing is the beauty and glory and majesty and superiority and all-satisfying splendor of Jesus Christ. Jesus is better than anything else the world offers you. He's better than anything else Satan can tempt you with. And Hebrews is here to explain in glorious detail why that is true. We have this, uh, one of our core values is pursuing Jesus. We pursue him above everything else. The minute we stop doing that is the minute we should just close our doors. And Hebrews just tells us why that is true. Um, I'm just going to look at the first four, va- four, four uh, um, verses of chapter one. That's kind of the introduction to the book. Um, and not just the introduction to my sermon, we're, we're about halfway done. So we're just going to spend the rest of the time looking at this Jesus who is better. So if the theme is Jesus is better than anything else, if the theme is the, super, the supremacy of Jesus, in the opening section we get a, a, a dazzling look at him. I think it's one of the, the most glorious, most splendid passages of scripture in all of the Bible. So um, can I just pray for us one more time as we really look at him here? And Jesus, I just pray again what... At which John the Baptist prayed that he would, end, would decrease so that you can increase. We, 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 we pray every Sunday that just people would leave this, this, this room, uh, leave these doors, uh, just with a heart full of, of, of who you are, Jesus. And I pray that you would capture our attention again this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read it again because it's, uh, it's quick. Um. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And as I read that a few weeks ago, the, these two words kind of jumped out, caught my attention. I just, they've just been rattling around my head, and it's those two words, God spoke. And surely the, the, the greatest uh, question humanity will ever ask, a question that each of you will have thought of and have, have tried to come up with an answer is, is there a God? And, and if the answer to that question is yes, then the very next question must be, well, has he spoken? To put that another way, has he revealed himself? Has he, has he shown himself to us? Has he, has he told us who he is? What he is like? How we might get to know and experience him? The answer that, that Hebrews gives us in, in, in this section is a resounding yes that there is a God, and, and yes, he has, he has spoken. He has revealed himself. This is just an incredible truth um, that we can just kind of pass over and, and try to get to deeper things here. God's, God's not a silent God. He's, he's not a withdrawn God. He's not far off. This is a God who has something to say. He's a communicating God. He's a speaking God. And I know we've been in Genesis 1, but the story of the Bible is, is just God making himself known, uh, revealing himself by speaking. Uh, in Genesis 1, he, God uh, speaks creation into being, uh, but, but also the purpose of him speaking creation into being is to reveal himself, to, to make himself known. It's, we've we've uh, established, man, his purpose is, is to create for himself a people who would know him, who would be his, who would be in community with him. And in the Bible, God is, is, is a father who wants his children to know him. He wants his children to, to, to be with him, to have a relationship with him. And all the dads in the room will, will testify to this, that one of the very most special moments in fatherhood is, is when your child utters those words for the first time, dada. Like it just crushes you, it melts your heart that this, this little tiny human that you may have had a little tiny part in creating but you've, you've helped create is, that looks like you refers to you as, as daddy, as father. That you now, you now have this relationship with them. And, and that's what God created us for. That's what God wants for us is for his children to be able to come to him, to be near to him. And to cry out, Abba, Father. He wants us to be able to, to confidently and boldly be in his presence, like our children do with us. This is a stunning fact. There is a God who speaks. He reveals himself to his people by speaking. And this is how Hebrews begins. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our, father by the, to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, so from the very first verse of Hebrews, the author is introducing us to the theme that Jesus is better. And he's doing so by, by contrasting the way God speaks, the way God reveals himself to his people. So you have this contrast um, between uh, God speaking long ago and, and in these last days. Uh, God spoke uh, to our fathers, contrasting it with God has spoken to us. God has spoke by the prophets. God has spoken by his son. He speaks in many times and in many ways, 
which implies that he has then spoken once and, and finally in his son Jesus. And you see, of these different eras, uh, long ago is just referring to before Christ came to earth, this, um, before the Messiah came, kind of looking at the Old Testament, phase one of God speaking. Um, last days, on the other hand, he's not referring to the, the kind of final days before uh, Christ returns again. And the New Testament writers use that phrase, last days, as referring the time between Christ's first coming and Christ's coming again. It's, we are in the last days in that way. He says, before Jesus came, God spoke to us, to our forefathers, through the prophets. And he's not talking about just the prophets, the major and minor prophets at the end of your Old Testament. Rather, he's talking about God spoke, who, uh, he's speaking about who, everyone who God spoke through in the Old Testament. So you're looking at Moses and David and, and a plethora of other people. It says he's spoken many times and in many ways. It's literally in many parts. So it's, he's, he's speaking in, in a piecemeal or a fragmentary way. Sometimes it was in an audible voice. Sometimes it was through a dream. Sometimes through a natural phenomena. A mountain on fire or a burning bush. Sometimes it was in a still small voice. He spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in a plethora of ways. But what he's doing is he's in contrast. He's saying the way he has spoken in these last days is better. It's actually more complete. We're told he has spoken to us definitely and finally and through the revelation of himself in his son, Jesus Christ. Notice even that the contrast between he spoke and he has spoken. It's, there's this completeness. There's this, this, this fullness in his word that is spoken. It's focused on the person and the work of Jesus. All of Jesus. The, uh, George Gunthery writes, the author's statement should not be understood as concentrating only on the teachings of Jesus, only on the words of Jesus, although the words of Jesus are uh, vitally important to him. Rather, it's the whole of the incarnation, the, the person of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the acts of Jesus should be understood as communicating God's ultimate word to his new covenant people. So the purpose of God speaking is to reveal himself. And our author here is saying he's really done that in these two phases. Phase one, God spoke he revealed himself in many parts, in many ways, through the prophets. Phase two, he has spoken. He has revealed himself fully in Jesus Christ. Phase two is better in that way. And we were only getting glimpses before, these, these foreshadowings, these precursors. Now we get the full picture. And, and here's, here's an incredible thing. Not only does the Son bring God's word, the Son is God's word. So it's, he's, the, he's the word made flesh, incarnate. So Jesus, in a way, is what God is saying. God is revealing himself. He is speaking, and what he is speaking is Jesus. Jesus is God revealed fully to us. This, this divine revelation is far better than what was before. The word in flesh, you can't get a better word than that. Um, and then the rest of the section really just tells us why. Why is Jesus better? And the writer then gives us these seven affirmations or seven reasons why Jesus is better. And that's what we're going to look at, this dazzling picture of Jesus. Um, firstly, uh, Jesus is better because he's been appointed the heir of all things. 
So Jesus owns all things. Uh, he's been appointed the heir. Uh, Paul writes about this in Colossians 1.16. He says, all things were created through him, Jesus, and, and for him. He said the same thing in Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So God's, God the Father's purpose from eternity past was that God the Son should inherit all things. And all things were made through him, and, and, and all things were made for him or to him in this way. And to put it in the simplest way, when, when Jesus Christ returns, he will take actual ownership of all things. Not just in title, but, but actually own them. He will inherit it all. It, it will all be at his disposal. The universe, the earth, the moon, the stars, everything on the earth that you know. The animals, the dirt, the rocks. Demons, angels, Satan himself, germs, viruses, all humans. Everything will be Jesus's, not just in title, but in reality. This is, in, uh, this is a fact that helps make sense of, of some of other Jesus's promises and words. The reason he can make certain promises is because of this. So as uh, an example in uh, Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. The reason he can say that is because I, he's like, I own the earth. It's, it's mine to give away to whomever I, I please. It's, it's the ownership and, and uh, the fact that he's the controller of all things that he can actually make good on his promises. He can make good on his word. You can't say, I'm gonna, uh, you're going to inherit all things. I'm going to give you the earth if you don't own the earth. And Jesus does. We're actually told in Romans 8 that he makes us co-heirs with him to share in the possession, to share in the rule of all creation. It's an incredible thought. Um, we don't have time to get into it. But um, look at the second reason Jesus is better. We're told that Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. It makes sense of the first one, isn't it? So of course he should inherit all things because he created all things. Um, here's another Sam Storms quote. It says, the universe of physical and spiritual reality is not eternal. There was a time when there was nothing except God, Father, Son, Spirit, until such a time as the Father said to the Son, say it, do it. And the Son said, be, and it was. God, the Son, who became a human man in the person of Jesus Christ, is the one who created the universe by speaking it into being. Time, space, every single solitary particle and atom, everything you know, everything that, that is and will be was, was spoken by Jesus into being. He didn't merely assemble the parts that already existed he called it into being out of nothing. This is incredible. The third reason Jesus is better is because he's the radiance of the glory of God. To really get into the, the who is this? Who is the one who created all things? Who, who is the one who inherits all things? Jesus. He, he's the radiance of God's glory. And in the Bible, that, that word glory He's usually used to refer to this, the luminous manifestation of God's uh, person. Um, so the, the, the word radiance here is in this sense, this splendor, the, this intense brightness. 
And all throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, God's glory is described in this way, this, this intense brightness. Moses, when he was speaking with God on the mountain, came down and his face shone because he was in God's glory. Jesus, the transfiguration, his face shone. His, his, his clothes were bright like white. All, me, all kind of metaphors kind of break down, but it's, it's, it's kind of like our, our experience of our actual sun out there. Um, the way we see and experience the sun is, is through its shining, through its rays. The sun's rays are the sun's glory shining forth. You can't separate the sun and its rays. Uh, to the, 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 the rays um, are the sun shining in that way. So like that, Jesus, Jesus radiates the very nature and the glory of God. To, to see Jesus is to see God. So if you ask that question, What's God like? Well, the only way to answer that is by looking at his, his glory and his brilliance that's revealed in Jesus. Jesus is also the exact imprint of his nature. Literally means the exact representation, the exact reproduction. And this word, this exact imprint, is, it's, it's used as this engraved character or impress made by a die or a seal. So think of like a, how a coin is made. Jesus is the perfect and personal imprint of God. Colossians 2.9 says, In Christ the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. So again, if you want to know what God is like, what does God care about, and what's important to God, we look to Jesus. That's where we find the answer to those questions. The fifth reason Jesus is better is Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. That word upholds, it doesn't mean just to bear the weight of, it actually means to carry on, to, to lead. So it, he, he upholds, Christ sustains all things in a, in a managerial way. This isn't a God who is far off, who, who, who creates the world and steps back and sees what happens. That's a heresy called deism. This is a God who is near. The author is saying the opposite. He's, he's sustaining. He's, he's carrying forward the created order to a designed end. It's, it's not this idea of like Greek mythology where um, Atlas is bearing the weight of the, the world on his shoulders. That's not what he's talking about here. This is a, a governing God. Uh, uh, he's sustaining and carrying along the world. And how does he do that? By the word of his power. So not only has Jesus created the world, he sustains it, he upholds it with his powerful word. Everything would literally crumble apart if he were for a nanosecond to remove his power. Everything you know and experience and love is sustained by Jesus' power. Sixthly, um, the other reason Jesus is, made, is better is because he's made purification for our sins. And this point alone should be the entire sermon. It, it, we've kind of, me and Andrew were joking around, we kind of feel like we're breaking the rules of sermon crafting where, you know, pick the main, the main point and preach it. Um, this is the main point. Um, but there's more to come on this, that, that this idea that Jesus is the, is the priest who offers purification for sins, that... Uh, but just to point out a few things about this important sentence. Um, firstly, notice, remember, this section is about Jesus. That's who it's about. And he is the one 
that, that, that makes purification for sins. No one else and nothing else, no systems, not you. It's, it's Jesus who did it. He's the one who purifies sins. Notice importantly, it's past, sin, past tense. He's, 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 he's made purification for his sins, or, or after he's done that, after he's made purification for, sin, for sins, it's this past tense, something he's done. It's not something he's going to do. It's not something that he's doing. It's something that he has done. It, it's, it's once and for all. It's, it's complete. It's over. Jesus' words on the cross where it's finished. They, for us, for believers, there's no hoping that your sins will be purified. There's no going back to him with new sins that need to be purified. They're all atoned for. The purification work is finished. The only thing that's left is to hold fast, hold, uh, to lay hold of what Jesus has accomplished by faith. Notice it's, it's our sins that needed purification. So our, it's our sin that has defiled our souls. It's, it's, we've, we've talked about this recently. It's your sin that's this barrier between you and God. He, he's this infinitely holy and, and beautiful, white-hot, holy God, and we cannot enter his presence with our sinful souls and live to tell about it. Our sins need to be dealt with. We, we need to be purified in order to enter his presence, in order to call out, Abba, Father. This is, this is a, a, a fact that the believers in the room need to be reminded of. No matter if you're a brand new believer or you've been a believer for decades, your sins have been forgiven. Rejoice in that. All of them. The sins that you committed today and yesterday, the sins nobody knows about but Jesus, the sins that you will commit tomorrow, 20 years from now, have been forgiven Jesus has purified them by his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. If you're not a believer, this is what's freely on offer for you. That's the gospel. That's the truth our author will dig into deeper. We no longer need a system, a priest, sacrifice, rituals to deal with our sins. Because Jesus is this high priest who has dealt with them once and for all. Which brings us to our seventh and final reason why Jesus is better. That last part of verse three. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So in order to understand that Jesus is better, we've we've been shown his identity. So he's the son of God. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of of his nature, he is divine himself. We look at his ability, he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Um, we look at his task, purification for sins. And finally, the, off, the author speaks of his honor, his present status. And if you, were to, if you were able to kind of travel back in time and take a tour of the Old Testament tabernacle and not die, um, you'd notice all kinds of beautiful imagery. And there's, there's altars, there's candlesticks and candles, and um, you eventually get into the Holy of Holies, and there's the Ark of the Covenant. But the one thing you'd notice isn't there is, it, is chairs. <laughs> there's, there's nowhere to sit down in, in the tabernacle. 
And that's because of what we'll read in, in Hebrews chapter 10. If you allow me to jump forward a bit, um, it'll be on the screen. It's because of this. And verse 11 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice of sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's better. Jesus' work is better than the work of the priests. And after making his sacrifice, his purifications for sins, he takes a seat. To be seated in that way, um, it means to be enthroned. So Jesus is, is the king of all things and people. The one who upholds the universe with his power is the one who sits at the right hand of God and he rules unchallenged. And if you read through the Old Testament, to be at the right hand is this, spe- this place of special honor and privilege. Uh, but like we said, most importantly, after making purification for sins, Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. It's the sign of the sufficiency and the finality of his atoning sacrifice. The old covenant priests, they remain standing. There's work to be done. There's more sacrifices to be made. Their sacrifices were temporary They can never fully take away the people's sins. But Jesus, in contrast, (laughs) he's offered a single sacrifice in the giving of himself on the cross, which is as fully and finally and forever and freely made purification for your sins. So appropriately, he sits down. There's no more work to be done on the matter. That's this dazzling look at Jesus. I think it's, it's got to be one of the most glorious passages in all of Scripture. Spectacular. Hebrews is saying God has spoken. He has revealed himself finally and fully in the sending of his son, Jesus. And look at what he's capable of. Look at who he is. Look at what he's done for you. Um, hardship is ahead of you. Hardship has, has been part of your story for a lot of you. Um, suffering is ahead of each and every single person in the room. You can be sure of that. Um, each of us in the room will experience hardship or suffering in life. And um, whether it's sickness, um, you lose a job, Instability, mental health, death. Um, But there's another specific kind of suffering for this family in the room. Uh, It's called persecution. It's it's this suffering uh, that we will experience because of our commitment and our profession that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Um, And and like the audience in this letter, it, it may not for the present moment, be leading to actual death for us. And we're experiencing the period of peace like they were. But, but nevertheless, um, each of us will experience that pressure from our culture uh, to give up on this faith and return to the old ways. 
And it may be family pressure. And it may be being publicly lambasted. It may, you may have friends and family who turn their back on you. You may lose out on opportunities because of your commitment to Jesus. Each one of those things has happened in our church family. And the writer of Hebrews is urging us that the only way through this is by fixing your eyes on this magnificent Jesus. The reason why is because he's better than anything else. He's better than anything the world can offer. He's better than anything that can be taken away from you. He's better than anything Satan can tempt you with. He is yours. You are his. Keep your eyes on him because he's better. And church, God has spoken. And he's revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus. And not only is this Jesus the agent or the deliverer of God's divine word, he is God's word. He's the message itself. He is God revealed. (laughs) The message in this letter is God has spoken to us in Jesus and it leads you to the question, are you going to listen to him? Are you going to fix your attention on him? There's gonna be these... um, these warnings throughout the letter urging you that it's, this is of utmost importance. Um, we've said, um, said last week, we're kind of setting out, here's our next kind of vision for the next three years. And one of those things is to become fluent in this. Just knee-jerk reaction for our church to abide with Jesus daily, to be with him. Apart from him, everything is impossible. God has spoken to us in Jesus. Are we going to listen? Um, let's stand and pray. And Father, we thank you that you are not a, gar, a God who is far off, but you are a God who is near. And you are a God who is attentive to his people, his creation. And we're told that you are a good father that you love your people (laughs) you you have good things for your people and we thank you father that you have sent us jesus to so that we can know you we can actually fix our eyes on on god by by looking to jesus thank you jesus for what you've done for us We are utterly lost without you. We are without hope without you. We praise you for who you are, Lord. We have great hope that you will come again and and take ownership of all things. We praise you for this beautiful creation that you spoke into being. And we want to give you the honor that you are due. We want to praise you because of what you've done, who you are, that you sit on the right hand of God, majesty on high, that you are king over all things. Jesus, I just pray that your spirit would help us the next uh, number of months as we make our way through this passage, this, this book. Lord, open our hearts, capture our attention, 
increase our affections for you, Jesus, because you are better. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.